Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Let's turn to our Bibles and look at Ecclesiastes. This is a mini-series we're doing for the new year. Then we'll return to Genesis, finish the Tower of Babel. And then after that, I think I'm going into the Exodus, and we're going to study the life of Moses through Exodus after we get all through this. I need to finish this series in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be looking just at a couple of verses at the end of this section. The same theme as what we've been talking about is, what time is it for you? And we talked about how Ecclesiastes 3 talks about there's different seasons in our life that come and go. And our proper response to when those seasons come is to leave the season we came from and then embrace the new season that God is giving us. But unfortunately, that becomes a problem for many of us because we don't like the new season. We go into protest mode. We want to hang back with the old season. And a lot of Christians do that and they get hung up. They get hung up in the past and... God has this new season of good things prepared for them, and sometimes it's hard, but they won't go forward. And so the idea behind Ecclesiastes 3 is you have to accept the season that you're in, and you have to accept also the many seasons that you're going to get in, and I mean many by M-I-N-I. You'll have little seasons at work, you'll have seasons in your marriage, you'll have seasons dealing with your family, and they come and go. And it's your job to be responsible of how to adapt to those seasons. So we're going to look at a couple more seasons as we wrap things up. The first thing that we want to tackle is this season that Solomon calls a time to sow. A time to sow. And so we talked about last week that it's okay when divisions happen. And there are times where we have to divide from people. There are times when we have to separate ourselves from people. We have to put consequences and limitations on people. We know that. We talked about that. But then there are times when we need to bridge the gap. And the idea of sowing is sowing a patchwork together and bringing it into reconciliation with itself. And so there are times where the action that is required is reconciliation on our part, whether that's in marriage, family members, or whatnot. Now, here's the caveat. And the world doesn't understand this. The world wants to reconcile without biblical conditions being met. And what I mean by that is, in order for you to reconcile, let's say to a spouse, let's say to a family member or someone, a friend or whatever, the condition must be there of repentance. Otherwise, you cannot reconcile horizontally with someone who will not stop the behavior. We desire to reconcile, but the condition of repentance must be met. Now, if it's met, our obligation is to forgive, right? We're always in a mode of being ready to forgive anyone that repents. But I want to show you something in Scripture. There are two kinds of forgiveness, and this will help you in understanding when to reconcile and when not to, and it all has to do with forgiveness. Let me show you these two passages real quick. Luke 17.3 is talking what we call horizontal forgiveness. Mark 11.25 talks about vertical forgiveness. Now let's read the passages and I'll explain. In Luke it says, take heed for yourselves. Look at the condition. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And notice the condition. If he repents, forgive him. 
this is talking about horizontal forgiveness. There are two types of forgiveness, horizontal and vertical. If the individual doesn't repent, you are not obligated to forgive on a horizontal level. Now, most people will say, well, I thought we were supposed to forgive. Yes, vertically. And this is the next passage, Mark eleven twenty five. And whenever you stand praying, so it tells you when and tells you who to do it with. Praying, obviously, to God, right? If you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your, your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. That's called vertical forgiveness. Now, don't confuse the categories. In vertical forgiveness, we forgive the person unto God, which means I release the penalty unto God and let him deal with it. It doesn't mean I have to establish a horizontal forgiveness. A horizontal forgiveness is based on the repentance of the person. But in vertical forgiveness, I have to forgive them unto God, otherwise I'll break fellowship with God. So I'll forgive them unto God, let him have the penalty, and wait on the person if they repent. Now, the person might never repent, the person might die, and you'll never be able to reconcile. And that's okay. What God is asking us to do is at least do the vertical forgiveness that you forgive the individual unto me, and we'll wait and see if they do repent. Please don't confuse those categories. Most Christians do, and they lump everything in, and they forgive horizontally when they shouldn't be forgiving on a relational basis. Now, the horizontal means that you can issue forgiveness if they repent, but it does not necessarily mean that the relationship will be reestablished, okay? It won't be sometimes like old times. There will be so much water under the bridge, so much hurt and damage that has been done. Yes, you can forgive, but you're probably not going to reestablish that relationship because, quite frankly, you don't trust them, okay? And I get that. I get that. But the idea is most relationships are broken especially if the person repents and is trying to reconcile because the other person won't forgive. That's at the core of it, is usually the person won't forgive when they see repentance, when they see reconciliation, because they've been hurt so bad, they think, I, hey, I'm not letting this person off the hook. I'm going to hold it over their head the rest of their life because of how bad they hurt me. That's wrong. That's obviously not how we're supposed to function. And if that's going on in any relationship then the season has come for you to end that. The season is for you to release that if you forgive them. And here's the sign of how you know you have forgiven. You won't bring it up. You remember what you did to me 20 years ago? I don't. You did that to me 20 years ago, and I'm not going to forget it. And they just keep bringing it up. It's called being historical. Not hysterical, historical they will constantly bring up the past on this poor person who can't escape what they did. They've asked for forgiveness. They've repented. They've done everything on their side they can do, but the person is so hurt by them, they won't release the penalty phase. And because of that, that relationship is damaged until that person forgives. So there is a time when we have to reconcile, especially if the other party is doing what they need to do. Let's move on to the next phrase that Solomon talks about. He says there's a time to keep silent, or time to keep silence. Now, when you look at that, you think, okay, what does that mean? Well, 
the scriptures help us out in when to be silent, okay? And you, I want you to see Proverbs 26, and then I'll show you Matthew 7. Proverbs 26, 4 says this, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Now, the idea is you have to be responsible enough to discern if you're dealing with a fool, okay? So when you are dealing with a fool, you don't answer him. Because why? A fool doesn't want your information. They're not wise people. Wise people will take information, apply it, and, and, and thank you for giving them that information and relieving them of their ignorance. That's a wise person. A fool rejects information given to him. They keep rejecting it. You have to discern, who am I dealing with? Am I dealing with a fool? That like I've told them like 20 times, and they still don't get it. And our mindset is, well, more information, and finally one day they'll get it. No. The Scripture is telling you to keep silent with them. Quit giving them the truth. If you've given them the truth, they know it, and it's incumbent upon them to act, react to it. But notice it says, lest you also be like him. You will be turned into a fool if you keep giving them truth that they keep rejecting. You turn into the fool. Because it's insane to keep doing the same thing over and over, over again, expecting different results, right? So it's foolish. Look what Jesus said about this. Same, same vein of thinking. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. So he's wanting you to figure out who are the dogs and who are the swine in your life. Okay, I know that seems graphic, but Jesus is trying to make a point about this. You don't want to give an unclean animal, like a pig or a dog, information. He uses the analogy of a pearl. Why would you give a pearl to a dog or a pig, is the idea. Lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. You would not give them a precious pearl, because all they would do, they wouldn't, they wouldn't see it as food, they would just trample on it, and then the pig and the dog would attack you. Translation is this. A fool is considered a dog or a pig because if you give them a pearl of truth, information that is true and evidential, they won't accept it. In fact, what they'll do is trample on that truth and then attack you for telling them the truth. That's our culture. Have you noticed our culture, you can't tell them anything that's true, otherwise they react in hostility towards us? It's amazing. I've seen people in political, uh, you know, uh, TV and stuff given facts. These are the numbers. These are the facts. And they get hostile with those numbers. It's not an opinion. It's just numbers. And they'll, they'll get hostile. That's what Jesus was talking about. So now let's take it into our own dilemma. As you discern the people around you, one of the things you have to understand is hold back the truth to those who don't deserve it. I know that seems counterintuitive, but that's what the principle is. Give the truth to people who are receptive. Give the truth to people you've never met before or whatever. No doubt about that. But after five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, you're going to keep saying the same thing? Now you're nagging. And scriptures don't want you to do that. I told my class this morning, when you watch Jesus in the Gospels, I want you to notice something as you're reading. He will never repeat himself. He says it once, and that's it. 
What does that say about that? If we're emulating the Messiah, and he only tells people one time, and he doesn't keep repeating himself, what does that say for you and I? I think once you, once you realize, quit repeating yourself, it's not the lack of information that these people are not getting it. They are suppressing the information. So, most of the time, don't give your pearls out to those who don't deserve it. Okay? That's what Solomon's saying. Now, then he says, in the opposite, he says there are going to be seasons when there is a time to speak. So know when to keep your mouth shut and then know when to open your mouth. You remember the scene, uh, this is in the Gospels, and Messiah was coming in on Palm Sunday and they were hailing him as the Messiah and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember that? They were laying down the palm branches in front of him as he entered triumphantly through Jerusalem. You know the scene. But you remember what the leaders said. Remember what they said. I want you to look at the Pharisees and religious leaders of that time as the totalitarian regime that you're seeing built up in America right now. Suppressing free speech, telling us what we can think, telling us what we can do, and telling us that our our morals are against them or whatever, making us be the bad guys. That's the same situation that was going on in the first century. So they were trying to silence the truth. So you know what they told Jesus? You remember that? Tell your disciples to shut up. Because Messiah, Messiah was there and they were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember? And so they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. And what did Jesus say? If I tell them to keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. You can't silence the truth. And I like this picture of the stone I saw. And it said, don't make me cry out. I like that. And why did someone put that on a stone? Because... Folks, too many Christians won't say anything anymore to this culture. They have been browbeat. They are self-editing because they're afraid that the culture is going to deem them homophobic, deem them racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, and you name it. And you know why they're saying you're phobic, you're phobic, is that you have an unusual fear that's not in reality. So they're making us to be the crazy ones. That's called gaslighting. That's what they're making us feel like. And a lot of Christians are afraid to say stuff. This week I had lunch with Philip Lee, and I don't know if you guys know him. We brought him here many times to our church, and he's the main ministry here in Kern County, and especially in this area abroad, that deals with helping people get out of the homosexual lifestyle and LGBT lifestyle, lesbian, whatever. He's the main guy, and he's biblical, and he's great, and I fully support Philip Lee. So if you have family members, by the way, that are struggling with this, send them to Philip Lee, okay? I think he's on our bulletin and the the number there. So I was having lunch with him, and and this is what he said, and this breaks my heart. He says, Brandon, I'm not getting many requests from churches here in Kern County to come speak at their churches. In fact, one pastor came to me and said, Philip, I can't believe you're still doing this. Why don't you give it up? I sat there in shock with him at lunch and and the fact that this poor guy is doing everything he can to help people see the freedom in Christ to get out of that destructive lifestyle. And the churches, the pastors in Kern County refused to have Philip at their church for they said, if you come, you will offend all our people and the homosexuals and lesbians in our congregations. That's a problem. Silence. 
is deafening in the church. These churches today, these mamby-pamby churches, these feel-good, emotional, experiential churches are not saying anything about the sins of our culture. Nothing is being said. I was talking to Philip, and, and he goes, he's, yeah, he, his office right there downtown is next to Mary Lee Schreier, uh, who does the Right to Life in Kern County. We had a, a meeting one time for the Right to Life, and I was talking to Mary Lee. She said virtually the same thing. She asked me, Brandon, how come the churches don't talk about the Right to Life? How come the churches don't talk about the, the horrible murdering of children? And I said, Mary Lee, I can tell you why. Because they want nickels and noses. And because of that, they will not preach against abortion. They will not preach against homosexuality. They won't bring up the talk. They're silent. You got babies being killed in the womb, and the pastors are silent. They have no spine. Don't think they're not going to have to answer Jesus on that one. It's black and white. We don't kill babies. And these churches won't even have the decency to talk about it. How dare they? That's the epidemic that's happening in our, in our churches in America. Dead silence. And why, why is it so hard? Why, why do we not open our mouths? Because they have a low tolerance for conflict. They don't want to be misunderstood. They don't want to be rejected. They want people to like them. What did Jesus say about this? He already told us about this. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Get over it. Right? If you're not willing to take the heat, then get out of the kitchen. I want to tell these pastors, hey, man, go sell shoes. Go sell insurance. But don't get in behind the pulpit if you're a coward because you want to be liked by people. And it's the same thing that goes for you and I. We go to work Monday morning out there in the trenches and they're trying to silence us. They're trying, us, trying to get us to be quiet. Don't say those homophobic things or those racist things, those xenophobic things. You Zionists, right? Now is the time to speak. Yes, we've lost the culture war. But you need and I need to be the voice crying in the wilderness until the rapture happens. We need to keep saying the truth until God takes us home. We're not going to cower in a corner afraid of this culture. Bring it on. We'll take you on. I'm not afraid. Put us in jail. Call us names. Do everything you want. I will not be silenced and neither will you. We will always be telling the truth. I liked what this rock says. Someone else had a, put a sign on a rock and I liked what this said. Never will a rock cry out in my place. May it never be that the rocks would have to shout because you and I are sitting silent. I like that. There is a time to speak and now is the time. Let's move to the other clauses that Solomon talks about. He says in verse eight, a time to love and a time to hate. Well, let's unpack that a little bit because that's sometimes confusing. A time to love. Have you noticed that the new motto for the LGBT mafia is this? Love is love. Love is love. It's all on their pride shirts. Love is love. Like they have a corner in knowing what love is. That we don't. We're the haters. We're the bigots, right? 
We don't know what love is. We're, we just hate everybody. You know what the funny thing is? They said in the first century, the Romans said about the Christians that they hate everybody. And they say it about us in the 21st century. Love is love. No, I'm sorry, LGBT mafia. You got it all wrong. According to the Bible, the Bible has parameters about love. The Bible defines love totally in different terms, which probably you're not aware of, LGBT mafia. I remember a Jehovah Witness was visiting our church one day, and they didn't obviously stay long. They stayed one time, and obviously they left. I think they came here because someone was dedicating a baby or someone was getting baptized. So we had a Jehovah Witness take part in services. And the comment they made, and I was talking about 1 Corinthians 13 or something like that, and I said love has boundaries, love has rules, there's stipulations in love. And, of course, the JW, not knowing the Scripture, said, oh, no, there's no boundaries in love. Well, there is. You can't love a tree, right? That's an easy one, right? You can't agape an animal. Yeah, you can uh, have affection for an animal, but love is defined very differently. And the word we have to understand is agape. It is the Greek word for what God gives us, that hesed in Hebrew that he gives us, that loving kindness is translated agape. The world doesn't understand agape. So when Solomon says there's a time to love, he's referring to this hesed, this agape type of love. Let me look, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 6. Love suffers long. Here's the, all the stipulations. It's kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. But look at this. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And I'll leave that up there. Look at the last qualifying statement that's underlined. If you're going to practice agape love, what it assumes is you know right and wrong. That there's a morality based on it, or sorry, that undergirds it, because it, it says you think no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity. Well, you would have to know what iniquity is, but rejoices in truth. You would have to know what the truth is, right? You would have to know what evil is, and you would have to know what right is, right and wrong, in order to love properly. Now, Put that rubric on the world. If they reject God's morality and his standards, they can't love properly because you have to know right and wrong. You have to know biblical morality. So the love is love mantra that they give is not based on morality. Hence, look how much sexual immorality is going on. We now have a push from the LGBT mafia for pedophilia. And they're going to say the same thing. Love is love. How can you and I get in the way of that? Because it's an iniquity. Because it's evil to say pedophilia is okay. That's evil. Drag queens that you'll see at the Super Bowl, evil. They're transvestites. They're messed up in the head. Something's went wrong. A Romans 1 has affected them where they're not thinking straight anymore. That's what's happened. Love has the morality that God gives out. Now, this is a, a very important part of our lives. We must agape people. Yeah, there's Philadelphia, which is brotherly love, which is kind of a friendship. There's eros, which is romantic love. And then there's storge, which is like sibling love and familial love. But the word we want to capitalize on right now is agape. What does that mean in Scripture? Well, it means this, that you seek and do the best for another 
regardless of how they treat you. Oh, wow. I seek the best and do the best for another regardless of how they treat me. Oh, well, that just blows their kind of love, the world's love, out of the water. Because the world's love is contractual. I will love you if you love me back. I will do good to you if you love me back. That's contractual love. Agape love is covenantal love. God loves the world even though the majority of the world rejects him, right? And he knows that they reject him. They shove their fist in his face, but he still loves them. And that goes for you and I. Understand this in your relationships on a personal level. There's a time to love. What, what does that mean? Agape love does not require the other person to be lovable. <gasps> Whoa. Whoa. Because I know good and well, there's a lot of people that say, man, I was married to the wicked witch of the West, or I'm married to a gorilla. And Brandon, you're telling me to love the gorilla and love the, the, the witch in my house? Yes. You're required to. Think about this. Let me give you this. The more you and I require that the other person be lovable for us to care or love for them, the less loving we are. Did you catch that? If I require someone to be more lovable for me to love them, I'm less lovable in agape. The converse is true. Also, the less you require the other person to be lovable, the more loving we are. Oh, oh, are you kidding me? They can act like a gorilla and I still have to love them? Yeah. She can act like a witch and I still have to love Yeah. That's agape. It's supernatural. It only comes from God. And in order to love that way, you have to accept the love of God in your life in order to love out like that. Because that's why Jesus can say, agape your enemies. Okay. Let me give an example. It's a couple by the name of Donna and Dylan. Okay. Donna is married to Dylan. And he's a big zero as far as relationship is concerned. A big zero. She's married to him. Um, he's self-centered, he's controlling, he's got major character issues, no doubt about that, but he's not abusive, he's still faithful, never cheated on her, and he does provide, and her and, and, and Dylan have, you know, the same spiritual values, um, believe the Bible and whatnot, but he's a zero as far as connecting is concerned, okay? And, and so her friends get around Donna and they tell her, he obviously doesn't care about you. He doesn't connect with you. Why don't you get rid of him? He's, he's, he's not providing you anything. He's not a very lovable person, Donna. Get rid of him. Move on to someone else. And she says, no, I, I, I see what you're saying. I, I understand what you're saying. I, I get it. He's not a connector and I probably will never be able to really connect to him on a deep level. And I get it that he's selfish and controlling. But my spiritual values are different than yours. She goes, I believe the Bible, and I believe what it says, that, that I'm supposed to love him, even if he's unlovable. I don't have grounds for divorce, like you, you ladies are trying to tell me. And uh, hey, when I made my vows, 
I did say the vow for better or worse. And yes, this is worse. It's not ideal. But it is the worst part that I, I made a commitment to. And I made a commitment before God, the triune God. And she says, I love Dylan. I go, I, yeah, I don't connect to him. There's no romantic feelings or anything, but I love him. And I care about him. I support his activities and interests. And I realize the reality that I'm in. It's never going to be the ideal. But I will obey God rather than my feelings. And that is a perfect example of a wife staying with her husband, practicing agape, even though he's really not the most lovable guy. That's hard. Agape is very hard, very difficult, but that's what Solomon's calling us to do. There are seasons when you have to agape, and then he switches gears and says, there's a time to hate. A time to hate. Well, that doesn't compute, because the liberal Christianities say you shouldn't hate anything. But the Scripture is telling us to hate. That's odd. But check this out. Loving people are hating people too. Does that throw you off? Loving people are also hating people, agape people. Let me show you some scriptures so you, you, you catch on what, what I'm trying to get at. Psalm 97.10, you who love the Lord hate what? Evil. Look at the next passage. Abhor or hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Now you get it, right? If you're an agape person, you will hate well. You should hate abortion, right? You should hate anti-Semitism. You should hate the practice of LGBT. You should hate things in your life. If you're this kind of person, well, I just want to get along with everybody and I don't hate anything, you're unbiblical. You're not a loving person. A loving person hates well because they're seeking to protect that which is true. Jesus, when he went into the temple, he hated well. What did he hate they were doing? He didn't hate the people. He hated what they were doing. They, the money changers were ex practicing extortion with the average Israeli. And what did Jesus do in his anger? He whipped them out of the temple. He actually created a cord of whips and whipped them out because he hated what they were doing. They had turned the house of prayer into uh, an extortion place, and he did it twice. So when you see that anger from Jesus, you're seeing God hate well. God hates evil, and we should too. It's part of, of what we're, we're made out of as Christians. Let's go to another contrast he gives. A time of war and a time of peace. Time of war and a time of peace. Let's talk about war. There are times in your life that you're going to have to declare war. You just can't sit idly back, watch this transpire in front of you. You're going to have to take action, and that sometimes means you're going to war. Some of you right now are in a war. You might be in a war with a family member, loved ones, friends, I don't know, neighbors, I don't know. But we don't go out and start wars, but have you noticed the wars come to your doorstep? They bring their junk to you. And when it comes to your doorstep, 
you have a choice, but the choice many times is you got to go to war too because they're bringing the fight to you. And if you don't fight, you will lose. And you will lose what is valuable to you. And so there are those times where, hey, get ready to fight. Now, on the grand scale, here's what most Americans don't realize. Most Americans don't realize that we are currently in a non-physical civil war in our country. Now, I think I'm speaking to the choir, and you already know that. There are plenty of Americans who are completely off the chain. They're off the grid. They don't have a Judeo-Christian value. They don't value America. They hate America, and they want to fundamentally transform it into a communist, socialist, Marxist, totalitarian regime. That's their mindset. And you're going to see it more and more in these upcoming elections, in the way the, the way the politics are going, you're seeing already a civil war. You can't even talk to some of these people. Have you noticed that? If you try to talk to them and negotiate and try to reason with them, all they do is get angry and hostile and want to beat you up. I watched a clip from Don Lemon. I don't know if you saw this on CNN, but I saw the clip on it. Him and his panel were mocking anyone who voted for Trump as a bunch of hayseed rubes. Just, uh, they called them boomer rubes. Just dumb. They don't know what they're doing. And that's why they vote for Donald Trump. When you see a newscaster get on there and, and trash half of America, you know we're in the Civil War. He should know better than doing that on national TV. The dude couldn't stop laughing at calling anyone who voted for Trump just a hayseed rube, just dumb, uneducated. That's Civil War. It's a non-physical one. But guys, we didn't start this. They did. They're bringing the fight to you. The second thing most people don't recognize is the spiritual war that's involved. This spiritual war is ramping up. I've seen things on a demonic, fallen angel level like I have never seen before. Stuff that 20 years ago when I started, I never saw anything like that. I'm seeing it on a constant basis. Constant. It's ramping up. It's getting worse. And most Christians don't even think and acknowledge the spiritual war. I'm Again, I know you do. I know you acknowledge that. But in America, they don't understand how Satan is working. We're admonished to know the wiles of the devil, the schemes, the plans of the devil. And most of Christian Christianity in America has no clue what the devil's up to. They don't understand that globalism is a move by him. They don't understand by getting America out of the picture, it's easier for the global government to form. They don't see the one world religion forming and the one world religion co-opting their own church. They don't see it. They're blind to it. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. They don't even know they're in a war. But you and I must understand this. You and I must heed this war and do what we can. That means you have to speak. That means you have to be a watcher on the wall. That means you must live cleanly. You must rescue as many people you can get on the rescue boat as possible as the days draw near. And so that means that we're going to be on mission and fighting that war. We've been deployed 
over and parachuted into enemy line, over in, in, in enemy territory. You're on enemy territory, you've been parachuted over, and now it's your job to do what you're called to do. Whatever that is, whatever mission he has given you, go for it. Don't wait. Don't wait and say, I'll wait till my kids get older. I'll wait to do this. I'll wait to do that. There's not any time left. You must start getting active in the war. We need all of you in it. We need everybody pitching in, doing their part, making this work, because Satan is ramping up the game. And he doesn't take a day off. He doesn't sleep. He is coming at us full force and wants to take everybody out in this church and me too. He would love for you to be taken out, but you can't give in to that. God has made you like Teflon. You have the spiritual armor, use it. That spiritual armor will protect you. It's the only chance you have against that. And so it's like going behind enemy lines with Teflon on. There's no chinks in the armor if you put all the full armor on. You can attack, you can go and do what you need to do, and you'll be protected. And then he says there's a time for peace. A time for peace. We are called ministers of reconciliation, Paul says. We take our our feet are shod with the gospel of peace. We go out and we give this message of reconciliation. And, 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 and understand that we're trying to get people to understand they need vertical forgiveness with God Almighty through Jesus Christ. And so we always stay on that evangelism uh, track of telling that gospel of peace. But also know, God will put sometimes a season of peace in your life. And I'm not talking about personal peace. I'm talking about you need to make peace. And it's incumbent upon you. You have the responsibility to make sure that it happens. If it's within your power and if the conditions are met, you need to lead out in being the peacemakers. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers? Did he not? If you have an opportunity to do it, do it. Because the root issue, again, I'll rephrase this again, the root issue that stops reconciliation, that stops peace, is because someone's harboring unforgiveness. Someone is, is, is just holding it back. So, we need to offer that. We need to offer forgiveness and have that peace. Let me show you a story real quick as we end here about peace and offering peace. Let me show you a picture. This is Mitsuo Fujita. Some of you might know who this guy is, but he's the infamous Japanese fighter pilot that led the attack on Pearl Harbor. For from this guy's childhood, from this guy's childhood, he dreamt of being a mighty warrior for the Japanese imperialistic government who would deal a death blow to the West. That's all the guy thought about growing up, okay? And, you know, and on the morning of December 7th, 1941, what happened? We got attacked by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. 2,000 Americans were dead, including my grandfather. He was killed uh, by a Japanese torpedo that shot into his ship. He died, drowned in the ship. And that ship is somewhere in the Pacific and not been brought up. So that's his permanent grave is down somewhere in the Pacific. So um, I just remembered even talking to my grandma about every time I bring up Pearl Harbor, man, she had intense anger, just intense anger every time she had to think about it. So I didn't bring up the subject very much. But um, it was a sore spot with her. She, you know, that was her husband. She had, she had lost her husband right there in Pearl Harbor. 
So anyway, this was the guy who did it. This was the guy who led the attack. It's him. Okay? Let me tell you a story. So he led the attack, and then by 1942, he found himself sick with uh, an emergency appendectomy uh, on a Japanese ship. Anyway, they did the appendectomy. They put him in sick bay. And for some reason, a uh, battle was, was still happening uh, overhead. So he left the sick bay to go see the battle. So he went on deck. Well, it wasn't just minutes later that a torpedo hit the side of that Japanese vessel and killed everybody in that sick bay. And he was on top of the deck and he, and he, he thought to himself, wow, I could have been killed. I wonder why I was spared. So that happened. And then in August, of, August 5th of 1945, he found himself in the city of Hiroshima. And he was there for military business. Mere hours after he left the city, we dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Remember that? And the atomic bomb went off. It obviously decimated the city, and that ended World War II, basically, when we did that. But once again... Fujita, Fujita looked back and he said, how did I narrowly escape being obliterated by an atomic bomb? That was number two. He kept saying to himself, why is my life being spared? I don't get it. And then to humble him, when the war ended, Japanese country was defeated, decimated. He had just a bitterness and anger filled his heart. And uh, this once proud warrior had to now turn to farming, and he couldn't stand it because it just humbled him. He was this proud warrior, and now he has to make a living now. Then 1950 comes in. In 1950, he's walking on a, uh, a bus train station platform, and he was approached by a man, an American, who gave him a pamphlet, and here's the pamphlet I want to show you. The pamphlet was given out, I was a prisoner of Japan. And he took this and he read it. And it was a story about an American by the name of Jake DeShazer. And here's a picture of Jake DeShazer, I think. There he is. He was captured and tortured by the Japanese. He was put in an internment camp there in Japan. But DeShazer had come to faith in that Japanese prison camp. And so when the war ended and he got out of the camp and returned to the States, he actually returned back to Japan and became a missionary to Japan after going through all this, and showing the Japanese how to seek forgiveness in Christ. These were his former enemies. But this is the pamphlet that Fujito was handed by Jake DeShazer. So in, in, still in the same year, a few days later, Fujita goes to the same station, the same platform, and a man was handing out free Bibles. And he says, on that day, I read the Bible for the first time, and he realized what it was saying, and he got saved. Amazing, huh? He gave his life to the Lord. He became a new person. Believe it or not, from that point on, Fujita discovered his mission for God. And you know what it was? He became an international evangelist for the Lord. And he led thousands of people to faith. This was the guy who led... The attack on Pearl Harbor coming to faith. 
And so you can see some of his productions. He, 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 there's him preaching. There's, I think we have another shot of him with Billy Graham at the same time. And then this, these were his books and things that came out right here from Pearl Harbor to Golgotha. And then the other one, uh, they actually made a movie about it from Pearl Harbor to Calvary. It's an amazing story. But even though he got saved, and even though he felt, you know, the Lord was doing great things in his life, he longed for something. And it was still bothering him. He still felt something was missing inside. And what he did, he realized he longed for forgiveness from the Americans. He'd already gotten forgiveness from God, but he longed for forgiveness from the Americans. And so, you remember that pamphlet he got? It was Jake DeShazer. By the way, Fujita was the one responsible for having Jake DeShazer put into the internment camp in Japan. He was the one responsible for Jake DeShazer, and Fujita knew it. This was his sworn enemy, and now he realized he needed to have peace with Jake DeShazer. And so he went and approached. Jake DeShazer was still doing missionary work in Japan. So he found Jake DeShazer's house, and he went to the door and was trembling, man. He didn't. He was so nervous and in anticipation because he didn't know how Jake would react to him. He was the one responsible for putting them in jail and attacking Pearl Harbor. And he, he, he got enough courage and he knocked. And a kind man opened the door, and it was Jake. And he says, yes. And Fujita says, I have a desire to meet you, Mr. DeShazer. I am Mitsuo Fujita, the one who led the Pearl Harbor attack. And it only took just a second for Jake DeShazer to recognize the name. They, everyone knew his name. And he says, come in, come in, come in. And he smiled. And at that point, both shared the love of Jesus and two sworn enemies had peace. I mean, think about that on that level. If those two sworn enemies, the guy who led the Pearl Harbor charge, can make peace with an American who he was responsible for putting in jail, I think that's something you and I can do. If that's the season, we got to have the courage of what Fujita did and just go and make peace. We are peacemakers. Blessed is the peacemaker. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.